following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning, Fathom. Uh, If this is your first time joining us this year, Happy New Year. As Kyle already mentioned, my name is Eric Shelley. I'm one of the elders here at the church. And so this, this COVID pandemic has brought us lots of firsts in terms of, in terms of church life. Early in the pandemic, we pre-recorded our entire service, and then we streamed them online for, for y'all to watch at home. And we held meetings, church meetings, D-group meetings over Zoom. Uh, we began streaming our in-person services for people to, to view at home. And, and today we're doing a video sermon for, uh, to, to play in the chapel for those of you who, are, who are, are here in person to watch. I'm sorry I'm not with you this morning. Uh, believe me, I'd, I'd rather uh, preach in person uh, to you rather than preaching to an empty room like I'm doing now. It's actually a little funny. When the pandemic started, I was still on uh, elder sabbatical. And so I, I kind of avoided having to preach to an empty room like Chris and John and Gary did. So maybe this is all just kind of payback for that. I'm, I, I don't know. Um, anyway, as Kyle probably already mentioned, my wife Ann and I tested positive for COVID in the middle of, of this week. Um, as of Friday morning when we're recording this, my symptoms have largely gone away. My voice is still a little scratchy, so I've got my, my tea here next to me if I need it. Um, Ann and my daughters have varying degrees of symptoms, um, but overall we're doing okay. But, you know, please, uh, please pray for, for, for the girls to, to get healed up. Um, even though my symptoms are clearing up, we felt that rather than me standing up in front of you and talking and spitting all over the room for, for 40 minutes, that pre-recording the sermon would be, would be the safer route. So um, if this pandemic has taught us anything, uh, it's to be flexible. And so thanks for being flexible with us this morning. But let, let's, let's get into the word this morning. Uh, grab your Bibles if you brought them. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one beneath every chair. We're going to be in the book of Colossians today, Colossians chapter 4. And we say this each week, we want each person here this morning to turn to the scripture passage on our own. We we don't want you to just simply take my word for it or take the the, the preacher's word for it, that this is what the Bible says. We want each each person to have the text in front of them and read it on their own. Uh, If you're using the Bibles beneath your seats, Colossians 4 is on on page 985. We'll be reading verses 2 through 6 today. And if I was in the room with you this morning, I'd I'd ask for a show of hands, but since I'm only on video, I'll, I'll just simply ask you a few questions did you make any New Year's resolutions for the coming year? Do, do any of you use the New Year as a, as a fresh start to make some, some new or better habits for yourselves? Have, have you made any goals for the coming year for 2022? Have, do, do you have any resolutions for 2022? Okay, now, now be honest. It's, it's January 9th when you're hearing this. Have you made a resolution nine days ago that you've already given up on, or, or already haven't kept? If you answered yes to that last question, don't feel too bad. I read last week that 80% of New Year's resolutions aren't kept. In other words, four out of five resolutions fail. And there's, there's lots of reasons why resolutions don't get kept. There, here, here are a few of the key reasons. The first is that a calendar change is a dumb time to make a life change. This has always been kind of my argument against New Year's resolutions. I'm, I'm all for resolutions. I'm all for making changes. But I'll make, I'll make a, a, a change, a life change, when, when it's time for a change, not simply because it's a, it's a new year. And research shows that people should make life changes when they're, when they're really fed up enough to make that change or when they realize that it's time for a change, not simply because the calendar flips to January 1st. 
Another reason resolutions fail is because many are, are negative instead of positive. Many times people resolve to stop doing something or not do something that's, that's bad for them or unhealthy for them. So we, we say, I'm gonna stop snacking on sweets and junk food. I'm gonna stop drinking alcohol. I'm gonna spend less time on my phone. I'm gonna spend less time on social media. I'm gonna stop watching Netflix shows like Tiger King. There's another season of Tiger King out. Folks, it's not good for you. Don't watch it. But these, these things are all bad for you. Instead, of po- instead, positive resolutions have a greater success rate. I'll eat more veggies or fruit for snacks. I'll drink more water each day. I'll get more sleep. I'll read a book instead of screen time. Positive goals or resolutions have a better success rate. And third, people often lack the necessary steps to achieve their goals or their resolutions. They may have a resolution or a goal like, like losing weight, but they don't know the changes or the steps needed to lose that weight. And so some practical steps are needed to keep resolutions. Now, it's probably not on, on everyone's list of New Year's resolutions, but I think most Christians would desire to share their faith more in the coming year. I think most of us would love opportunities to talk to a friend or a coworker or a neighbor about, about Jesus. I don't know many Christians who don't think it's important to share their faith or talk about their faith in Christ with others. But I do know many Christians who, for one reason or another, don't share their faith very often. Is anyone with me on this? Does anyone desire to share their faith more deeply and more openly in, in the new year, in 2022? Why is it a hard thing to do? Why is it hard for us to talk about Jesus with friends, coworkers, or neighbors? I don't think it's, that it's because we're afraid of, sh- of stating our opinions or convincing them about something. We, we do this all the time. You should try that restaurant, it's great. That show on Netflix is so good, you need to watch it. We recommend doctors, dentists, barbers, auto mechanics to others. Oh, they're great, you should go there, they're, they're, they're the best. And we always think our person is the best, right? And we love telling others about how they're the best. So we're not shy about recommending things to others when we believe they're good things to recommend. But sometimes we're shy and lack confidence in talking about our faith with others. And there's lots of reasons why it's hard to share our faith. But I think the biggest reason is that we don't want to be seen as counterfeits. I think that more than anything else, the thought of being seen as counterfeit or hypocritical scares and prevents more Christians from sharing their faith than anything else. We don't want to be seen as the hypocritical Christian, the counterfeit Christian. The ones that say they believe one thing, but then live and do another. The ones non-Christians love to point to when they criticize Christianity. We've all probably seen or experienced the hypocritical Christian in some way, and and we've probably seen or experienced it somewhat recently. And so I think that many Christians struggle not only with how to talk about our faith, but how to talk about our faith confidently. So instead of sharing confidently, authentically, and honestly, we may, we may overcompensate and share loudly, arrogantly, and ignorantly. Thinking that if we just make the point and get our argument out there, we've done our job. Or instead of actually engaging someone on a topic and genuinely trying to learn the other person's perspective, we may do the opposite. We don't talk about our faith or our beliefs at all. So as we start 2022, as, as Christians, as followers of Christ, How do we talk to each other and tell others about Jesus? How do we do that in a way that honors and glorifies the God that we follow in a confident, honest, and authentic manner? 
without fear of being hypocritical, without being counterfeit. Let's turn to our text and, and read what the Bible has to say about this. In our passage today, Paul lays out for us some helpful and practical steps for how we can be confident as we tell others about our faith. As I mentioned, we'll be looking at Colossians 4 this morning. So let me just set a bit of context to this passage. The Apostle Paul is a writer of Colossians, and he's imprisoned in Rome when he's writing this letter, and he's writing to the Christian church in the city of Colossae, which, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Paul's writing to challenge this church to place Christ as the head of all things in their lives. And as, as he's kind of wrapping up this letter, he's summarizing some final instructions for the church. And at the end of chapter 3, he gives a handful of brief instructions for various groups. He instructs husbands and wives. He instructs children and parents. He instructs uh, servants and masters or, or employees and employers. And after the instructions to the specific group, groups, Paul gives some summary instructions for all people and for, for all groups. And those instructions are some practical steps to help us confidently and, and effectively share our faith and talk about our faith with outsiders. So let's read verses two through four together, starting in verse two. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So the first step that Paul gives us is to pray. The first step we can take to be confident in sharing our faith and in sharing the gospel is to pray with purpose. Sharing our faith confidently requires and starts with prayer. And Paul gives us a short, concise instruction on how to pray with purpose. In verse two, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And verse two may be worth committing to, to memory as, as it's an effective uh, model and, and a brief model of, of a prayer life. And in this model, Paul gives us three approaches to prayer here. The first is to continue steadfastly in prayer. This means that we continue in prayer. We don't, we don't stop and start, we, we continue. In the Greek, the wording here means to persevere. This doesn't mean that we're constantly on our knees praying 24-7, but it means that prayer is something that we do regularly. It's a practice, a, a discipline, a habit. It's a discipline that we continue doing. Most people pray in the bad times, in the hard times, when there are urgent, direct needs. A family member is sick or in the hospital. A friend lost a job. A child is struggling in school. We, we pray in the hard times, but, but Paul says to pray regardless of good times or hard times. We're to pray steadfastly and continually. Paul's saying that we need to pray continuously. We should pray continuously for opportunities to talk about our faith, for the ability or the words to explain what we believe and why we believe it, for the confidence and courage and boldness to share our faith. We should pray for these things continuously. Next, Paul says we're to be watchful in prayer. We teach kids at a young age to pray with their eyes closed and their hands folded and their heads bowed. But we teach kids this because kids have the attention spans of a gnat. They can be all over the place. My daughters have literally started eating or reading or drawing when I've prayed too long before meals. They, they get distracted easily. They have short attention spans. And so we teach kids to close their eyes to pray to help them avoid distraction. And here Paul seems to contradict that. What he says conveys the idea of praying with our eyes open. 
But Paul is giving us figurative instruction here. He isn't saying that we should simply pray with our eyes physically wide open, but he's saying that we're to be alert and attentive to the world around us and then pray accordingly. We are to look for things to pray for and people to pray for. And those things should form the purpose to our prayers. In Mark 14, Jesus echoes this where he tells the disciples to watch and pray in the garden. We're to have our eyes open for things to pray for. We're to be paying attention, looking for things to pray for, listening for things to pray for, praying for opportunities to share our faith with others, seeking purposeful prayer. And when we're looking for people to pray for and praying for opportunities to share our faith with those people, God frequently grants us those exact opportunities. God provides us with opportunities to share our faith when we're prayerfully watching for those opportunities. I've seen it in my life, as, as I've prayed for my neighbors and prayed for opportunities to talk, uh, to God, talk about God with them, God's answered those prayers. When we, when we pray watchfully, we're ready. We're, we're, praying watchfully gets us ready with our heart prepared and aligned to talk to others about God and about our faith. 1 Peter 3.15 says to always be ready to give the reason for the hope you have in Christ. And so praying watchfully helps us to always be ready and alert. And third, Paul says we're to pray with thanksgiving. Praying with thanksgiving is, is giving thanks in our prayers regardless of the outcome. So if God answers our prayers just as we've asked him to, we give thanks. If God answers our prayers differently than we asked, we give thanks also because he still answered our prayers. If God makes us wait a long time before our prayers are answered, we give thanks for that also because God works while we wait. Being thankful combats selfishness in our hearts. Just, just like we teach our kids to say thank you when they receive something, we need to teach ourselves to say thank you to God for his gifts and, and answered prayers. Thanksgiving and thankfulness put us in proper position for continuous prayer. And so Paul tells us to pray with thanksgiving, making thanksgiving a regular part of our prayers. So I know that was a bit of a tangent on prayer, but, but it was too helpful of a teaching not to spend some time on it. Next in verses three and four, Paul gives us some more purpose to our prayers. Let's, let's read these two verses again. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So the us that Paul mentions here refers to Paul and his coworkers, to other preachers like Paul. But it's also for other disciples. It's also for others who are sharing their faith with those around them. And Paul requests prayer for two, two things here. First, that God would open doors for the gospel to be declared and also that God, that the gospel may be declared clearly. So first, Paul says that we should pray that God opens doors for the word, that, that, that God will open the door and create the opportunity or the situation or the conversation for the gospel to be shared. Now, I, I think this issue, issue explains some of the conversations that, that Christians sometimes have. I think Christians feel passionately about an issue and they wanna talk about it and tell others about it. And so they, they, they kick down that door instead of praying for God to open the door, instead of prayerfully and thoughtfully approaching the conversation, they just rush into it. Instead of asking God for opportunity and, and the open door, they make the opportunity and open the door themselves. 
Most of the time, this results in unproductive conversations that, 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 that are very one-sided. The Christian speaks at the other person about God, and the other person likely, likely tunes them out, not necessarily because of what they're saying, but how they're saying it. And so Paul says to pray for God to open doors, not for us to open them, because Paul knows that praying for God to open doors is more productive. And the second thing that Paul says we should pray for in is in verse four. Here Paul tells us to pray for clarity when we're sharing the gospel. Paul wants to be able to clearly declare the gospel of Christ. Paul knows that what he's preaching about can be hard to understand. It's why in verse three, he calls it a mystery. And so he asks the Colossians to pray for him to have clarity in his speech. Do you pray for your pastor before coming to church on Sunday morning? Have you ever prayed for him during the week while he was writing that week's sermon? I mean, you never know. He could have gotten COVID the week that he's prepping to preach, like I did. So pray for your pastor as he prepares to preach each week. One commentator said this, pray for your pastor as he prepares the word, studies, and meditates. Pray that the Holy Spirit will give deeper insight into the truths of the word. Pray too that your pastor will practice the word that he preaches so that it will be real in his own life. As he preaches a message, pray that the spirit will give him freedom of utterance and that the word will reach into hearts and minds in a powerful way. So we should pray for pastors and preachers and teachers in the church that they would speak and share clearly. We should also pray for others who may share the gospel in their daily lives that they may do it clearly. Because one thing, it's one thing to know the gospel and to know what we believe, but it's another thing to tell others about it and communicate it to others clearly. In a world where, where people are told to find your truth and live in your truth and to follow your heart, if it's not explained clearly, the gospel could simply come across as, as some Christian self-help. And so Paul says to pray that those sharing their faith, those sharing the mystery of Christ, Pray that they would, will, will clearly communicate the gospel and its power to others. I read about an experiment that a psychologist ran where, where people were divided into two groups. One group was the tappers, so tappers, and the other group was listeners. Now, the tappers' job was to tap out the rhythm of well-known songs, like, like Happy Birthday or Jingle Bells, real familiar songs. The listener's job was, that's self-explanatory, the listener's job was to listen and to also identify the, the song that was being tapped. And at the start of the experiment, tappers predicted that their song would get identified about half the time, 50% of the time, because, because they knew that they were, they were tapping out familiar songs, familiar tuned, tunes. But the results of the experiment were that the listeners only identified the song 3% of the time. Why such a big discrepancy? Why was it so hard for the listener to identify the song? It's because when a tapper is tapping out a song, they can hear it in their head. They can hear the tune in their head, and so their tapping can follow that tune. But the listener doesn't have that specific tune in their head already. They may be mentally flipping through hundreds or thousands of songs in their head and trying to align their mental song catalog with what's being tapped. And the tappers would almost get flabbergasted how hard it was for the listeners to identify the song correctly. They thought it should be obvious because the song was so familiar. 
This is called the curse of knowledge, where, where you know something well, but it's hard to explain to someone who doesn't have that knowledge. I think the same goes for, for, for sharing the gospel and sharing our faith. We may know what we believe well. We may know that, that Jesus died for our sins and forgave us of our sin. And we may know, that this, know this very well and why, why it's important. But when it comes to sharing it with someone else who doesn't know it well, who's, who's surrounded by other competing worldly ideas, it can become difficult, maybe even flabbergasting. This is why we pray for clarity. Pray for clarity in your conversations. Pray for clarity in the conversations of other Christians. Pray for clarity in the communication and preaching of pastors. We pray that we may make it clear, which, as Paul says, is how we ought to speak. And so Paul's first instruction is that we can be confident and share our faith confidently with others when we pray with purpose. By praying steadfastly, watchfully, and thankfully. By praying for opportunity and praying for open doors. By praying for clarity. Paul's next instruction to us comes in verse five, which reads, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. <clears throat> Here, the second step that Paul provides to help us share our faith confidently is to walk wisely. Walk here means how we live. Our daily life, our conduct, our actions, all of it. Walking in wisdom or walking wisely means that in all facets of our lives, we strive to do the right thing. Sometimes the right things are the small things. Telling the truth. Paying your bills, paying them on time. Obeying laws and rules. Not, not just the ones that you agree with, but, but obeying society's laws and rules. Working a full day's work. With so many people working from home now, it's, it's easy to take a little bit more time for yourself and maybe a little less time for your job while, while still earning that, that full, uh, full day of work and still being paid for that. Being polite, being courteous, not gossiping. Returning your shopping cart to the shopping cart corral to store. That's the right thing to do. These, these are all things are, are, are the right thing to do. Oftentimes, doing the right thing in small things is just as important as doing the right thing in the big things. And Paul tells us that walking in wisdom is, is to do the right things, knowing that God's watching and assuming that outsiders are also watching. Paul uses outsiders here to refer to the world, to, to those outside of the church. We may, we may also call them non-believers or the unchurched, but Paul here, he calls them outsiders. And he says we're to assume that they're watching how we live. I read a story about a pastor who moved to a new church in a new city, and one of the people in that city became skeptical of him and, and of his preaching. And so the man hired a private investigator to follow the pastor around and, and report back to the guy about how the pastor actually lived uh, when he wasn't at church, when he wasn't, when he wasn't preaching. And the PI followed him around and, and watched him for several weeks, and then he reported back to the man who hired him. And the PI reported that the, the pastor's life consistently mirrored his preaching. And as a result, as a result of that report, the man who hired the PI became a believer. The pastor walked wisely and it made a difference to the outsider who watched him. We never know who outside of the church is watching us. And we never know how they're watching us or why they're watching us. Now, I highly doubt any of my neighbors have hired a PI to spy on me, but I do assume that they're watching how my family and I live and how we act. And so we're to walk wisely before outsiders. Walking wisely allows us to do what Paul instructs at the end of verse five, which is to make the best use of the time. 
The phrase making the best use of the time means to redeem the time. In other words, we can, we can reclaim or recover the, the time or the opportunity for the kingdom and for the gospel. When we pray watchfully and persistently and walk wisely towards outsiders, we can redeem every opportunity for Christ or for the kingdom. So suddenly borrowing a tool from a neighbor or, or borrowing a cup of sugar from your neighbor could, could become a kingdom event and not just a walk across the street, not just a meaningless, a meaningless five-minute trip across the street. Your interaction at the checkout counter of the store or with your server at a restaurant or with, with a professor or a teacher or, or an employer, a boss, an employee, they, they can all become conversations or interactions that can be reclaimed or redeemed for the gospel when we, when we walk wisely because we never know who may be watching us or why. So Paul's last instruction here is in verse six. We read, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. And so as we seek to be confident in speaking to others and telling others about our faith, verses two to four addressed how we should pray. Verse five addressed how we should live and walk. And verse six finally addresses how we should talk. Paul says in verse six that our speech should be gracious. But what does that mean? What does it mean for our speech to be gracious? The words gracious and grace have lots of, lots of uses. We say some athletes or figure skaters or ballerinas, we say that they, they move with grace or they move graciously or, or gracefully. We say that someone graced us with their presence. We say that someone took the loss or, or, or they took the news graciously. To speak graciously means to have, have beauty or eloquence or honor or politeness in our speech. But the idea that scripture conveys is, is slightly different. The idea of speaking with grace appears in multiple places throughout the Bible. In Psalm 45, Psalm 45, 2, it says, Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. And Psalm 45 is, is a psalm um, prophesying about the coming Messiah. It's saying that the Messiah will speak with grace. In Luke chapter 4, the apostle Luke states that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 45 when he says in verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So Jesus, the promised Messiah, spoke graciously. In Ephesians 4, Paul is addressing our speech. And throughout this chapter, he says, he says things about our speech like, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth to our neighbor. Speak such as is good for building up. Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths so that our speech may give grace to those who hear. The idea that's conveyed in scripture is that our faith in Christ should be evident in how we talk as well as in how we live and walk. Our speech should reflect our lives in Christ and our beliefs in Christ. People should be able to hear us talk and tell that we're Christ's disciples without us ever having to tell them that we're Christ's disciples. They should be able to tell simply by how we talk because we're gracious, honest, sincere, authentic. Because we talk about subjects that are honorable, just, and pure. My wife, Ann, works for a large consulting firm with, with employees all over the country and all over the world. And so she's often working and, and talking with people who she's never met in person. She's only, she's only met them over the phone or, or on video. And multiple times she's told me, I had a conference call today with so-and-so, and, and they kind of talk like they're a believer. 
Or so-and-so always says things that make me think she's a Christian. And then as Anna's continued to work with these people and continued to have uh, phone calls and video calls and conversations, it would eventually come out through some conversation that, that they were in fact believers. So on calls discussing IT consulting, their speech was gracious enough that someone in another time zone could tell they were Christians. So our words and our life should align. Our talk should match our walk and vice versa. There shouldn't be any contradiction between the two. We should live wisely and speak graciously, both towards those in our church family and towards those outside the church. Paul then mentions that our speech should be seasoned with salt. This is the third step that Paul suggests, that we should have salty speech. Now, if you do any cooking of any kind, you'll know that one, salt is an important ingredient in many and most recipes. And second, that there are many kinds of salt. There's just a normal, common, plain table salt that's in most of our salt shakers. But I did a quick internet search, and the internet listed many other different kinds of salt, including kosher salt, gray salt, pink salt, sea salt, Himalayan salt, Hawaiian salt, Celtic sea salt, smoked salt, garlic salt, celery salt, habanero, chipotle, lemon, espresso salt. There's even pepper salt, which I guess is just having your salt and pepper combined together in one, in one shaker. It's either a really great efficient idea or a really dumb idea. I'm not quite sure what to make of, of pepper salt. But the point is, there's lots of kinds of salt. But they all have primarily the same purpose, and that's, that's seasoning. All the different types of salt that I listed, they're all used for the purpose of seasoning the dish. And not just seasoning it, but seasoning it to make it taste better. The seasoning enhances the flavor of, of the meal, of the food. Our words should work the same way. They should be gracious and point others to God. But they should also be savory and enhance what we're saying. They should make the gospel attractive due to the graciousness of our speech. Speech that's seasoned with salt doesn't just communicate about God, but it does so in a way that conveys the love and the beauty of the gospel and the love of Jesus. Our speech should enhance our testimony and our life's witness. In Bible times, however, salt was not just used for enhancing taste, but it, but it also had two other purposes, which, is, which Paul's applying to our speech here. The first is that salt was a preservative. Remember, in Bible times, this is, this is before refrigeration. So if you wanted to keep meat or something from going bad, you would cure it with salt. You would, you would pack something in salt because salt would preserve the item longer so that it wouldn't spoil. And Paul's saying that our words should be seasoned with salt so that what comes out of our mouths doesn't spoil the witness of our lives. We're not to utter any corrupting words or speech. So, so angry words, criticisms, gossips, insults, lies, these can all corrupt our speech when we talk with outsiders. One minute of speech can spoil or corrupt any previous witness and actions people may have seen from us. Our words can corrupt our walk just like the uncured food can get corrupted and go bad. Our words should preserve and reinforce our walk like salt preserves food. And secondly, in Bible times, salt was also used in sacrifices. And Paul's, Paul's suggesting here that our words are sacrifices offered to God. What percentage of your words would you say are pleasing to God? 
What about the curse word that slips out when a driver cuts you off in traffic? Or disrespectfully talking about that politician that you disagree with? Or crude jokes? Hey, guys, this, this is an area of growth for, for many of us. I've been, I've, I've been around guys. I know how, how guys can talk when they get together. Crude jokes, double entendre, none, none, of us, none of us worshipful. Regardless of who we're talking to, considering our words as sacrifices can help us say things in a gracious manner. Our words should be pleasing to God. Our words should be worthy of worship. And so our words should be without blemish or stain. They're to be pleasing to God. So think about your speech. Think about all the words that you say each day. Another internet search told me that the average person speaks anywhere from 7,000 to 20,000 words a day. Now, I live in a home with three women, and based on my experience in my household, I'm assuming women are closer to the 20,000 words per day and men are closer to the 7,000. But that's, again, that's just my experience. But for, for simplicity, let's just average it and say 14,000 words a day. If we considered all the 14,000 words that we speak each day, how would you describe yours? Do they enhance your walk? Do they preserve your witness to outsiders? Are they worshipful? Our speech should be seasoned with salt. The way we speak should be worshipful. It should, should enhance and preserve the way we live before outsiders, just as salt enhances and preserves food. Now, I don't know where you stand as, as, far, as, as far as sharing your faith or as far as evangelism. Maybe you're really good at it. Maybe it comes, comes easy to you and, you and you can do it well, striking the right balance of, of, of directness without, without offending. But maybe you're not so good at it. Not because you don't think it's important or don't wanna tell others about Jesus, but, but you're worried that you'll offend someone. You're, you're worried that you'll, you'll turn someone off, you'll put them off. Maybe you're not confident in your ability to put your, your beliefs into words in a way that's clear. Maybe you're worried that you'll share your faith with someone. You'll tell them that you're a Christian and that you believe in Jesus, but then, you, then you'll make a mistake. And, and you worry that you'll sin and they'll see sin in your life and think you're a hypocrite, a counterfeit. And, and, and you're, you worry that they'll lump you in with all the other hypocritical, hypocritical Christians that they've met. As I said earlier, I think the fear of being labeled a hypocrite prevents more Christians from, from being confident in talking about their faith than anything else. Because we each know how sinful we really are. We know all of our behavior and our thoughts and our actions, and we know that, we know that, that we're sinful, that some of our, our behavior and our thoughts are sinful. And the last thing we want is to be called a hypocrite or a counterfeit, and so we keep our faith to ourselves. But a pastor named Graham Marsh said that what the world and Christians alike fail to understand is that hypocrisy is not falling short of a standard. Hypocrisy is not the inability to achieve perfection. A Christian who sins is not a hypocrite. A Christian who sins is a normal human being. All human beings sin and fall short. That's in Romans 3.23. Sinning doesn't make you a hypocrite. Sinning simply makes you imperfect. It simply makes you a human and a sinner just like everyone else. Marsh points out that the opposite of hypocrisy then is not perfection, but authenticity. Authenticity is, is being real. Authenticity is owning your mistakes and your imperfection. It's being real about where you're at and about what God is doing in your life. 
but it's also being open to God's continual transformation in your life. Authenticity acknowledges the fact that we aren't perfect and never will be. But there is one who was perfect. And he paid the ultimate price for our imperfection. I think sometimes Christians fail to realize this or, or, they, or they forget this. We forget that we don't need to be perfect to share our faith confidently. We fail to realize that our imperfection may be the most authentic and powerful testimony about our Savior and his work in our lives. Because it's not about what we do or don't do, but rather it's about what Jesus did. And so, so we need to be authentic. We need to be wise. We need to be gracious. This is why Paul says that we should pray with purpose, walk wisely, and use salty speech towards outsiders. Paul says these are the keys and the steps to sharing our faith with confidence. One of my favorite bands is, is the band The Eagles. And for those of you who are under 30, The Eagles are a band that, that got their start in the mid-70s, and they've got, they've got many uh, popular classic rock songs. They're sort of a mix of country and rock, and, and I think that mix kind of appeals to lots of listeners. They sold more albums than any other musician or, or group out there. And one of their most popular songs is a song, Hotel California. And the work and the effort that they put into writing this song is, is, is almost legendary. It took the band more than a year to write the song, Hotel California. They spent over a year writing the music and the lyrics, getting the vocals and the instrument solos just right. It took them three separate recording sessions before they got the version of the song that they wanted. In all, they spent eight months of studio work recording and polishing the song take after take after take. At times, they had, they had cots brought into the studio, and they would go in and they would work on the song for two or three days at a time. They were so dedicated to getting it right. The, the, the length that they went to, to to perfect the song alone caused the album that it was released on to be released four months late. But arguably, it all paid off as the song is generally recognized by fans and by critics alike as, as one of the great uh, classic rock songs of all time. Now, Ann and I have gone on vacation to Mexico three different times in the, in the 15 years that we've been married, and each time we stayed at a resort. And while, while you're dining at these resorts, they'll have mariachi bands that, that come around and, and play music as entertainment. And they'll, they'll play some traditional uh, Mexican songs, but they'll also play some songs catered to lots of the American tourists that, that are there. And every time that we were in Mexico, without fail, the mariachi band played Hotel California. And every time without fail, it was a lousy version of Hotel California. The, the vocals weren't strong. The lyrics sounded strange when sung with a Spanish accent. There were no drums, no guitar solos. It just wasn't a strong version of the song. And to a fan of the Eagles, it was downright terrible. Now, suppose, suppose you've never heard the song Hotel California. Suppose you don't know what I'm talking about when I say it's one of the great classic rock songs of all time. And suppose you vacation in Mexico and the mariachi band comes around and you hear them play their version of, of Hotel California. And so your ears perk up. You want to listen to the song that I just spent the last five minutes of sermon time talking about. And so you listen more intently to the mariachi band and you, and you hear them play their cover version of the song. And as usual, they butcher it. And you say to yourself, what was Eric talking about? That song, that song's terrible. How in the world do the Eagles sell over 200 million albums playing garbage like that? I think this is how a lot of us think about sharing our faith. We know that, that we're at best a lousy cover band trying to play and sound like a classic song. 
And so instead of going out there and playing our authentic version of the song, even if it's not perfect, we instead do nothing. We say nothing. But the, the, the problem with doing nothing is that it does nothing. It does nothing to show Jesus to others. It does nothing to reflect God's kingdom to the world around us. It does nothing to share the truth and the good news of the gospel. Doing nothing does nothing. Now, that mariachi band isn't going to sell many albums. But they're not counterfeits either. They, they aren't trying to be something that they're not, they're not. They're not trying to sell millions of albums. They're not trying to tell you that they're the Eagles while playing a knockoff version of the Eagles. They're simply pointing to the real thing. While you're traveling and while you're away from home, they're reminding of you of something good and familiar from home. They're playing you a reminder of the real song. They're playing their own style as best they can. They're using their own skills and their own instruments to be a reflection and a reminder of the real thing. Isn't that what we're to be doing as Christians? Pointing others to the real thing? Pointing others to Jesus? Using our own lives and our own paths and our own stories to be a reflection and a reminder of Jesus? So that's the encouragement and the challenges for us this morning as we start 2022 to put aside the fear of being seen as counterfeit and to be confident in our faith, to pray for God to open doors for us to share the gospel and share it clearly, to walk wisely before the world around us, to speak graciously and authentically with words that are seasoned with salt. That's the call. That's, that's the resolution. That's the encouragement this year, to point to Jesus and point to the gospel with confidence. Please pray with me. Dear Jesus, we, we love you. God, we love you. And, and we want others to, to come to know you and to love you also. And, and, and God, so um, we, we want to tell others about you, but, but sometimes, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to have uh, the, the confidence or the clarity or even the opportunity uh, to, to do that, to, to, share, to share about you with others. So God, I pray, I pray this morning that, that we would put these steps that Paul laid out for us to heart, that we would pray for those opportunities, that we would walk wisely and that we would, we would speak well and graciously um, all the times, but especially when those opportunities come to us, God. I, I, pray, for, I pray for clarity in our speech that, that we can clearly tell others about you, that we can be ready uh, to, to give an answer to why we love you and why we believe what we believe. And so God, for the, for the people here that maybe, uh, maybe sharing their faith is, is something scary to them, it's overwhelming, it's scary, I pray you would, you would give them confidence, but I pray that you would also just help them to prepare and, and to pray and, and to walk confidently so that they can share confidently. God, help us to, 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 to not think of ourselves as, as, uh, as hypocrites or counterfeits counterfeit sinners, but help us to, to know and remember that, yeah, we are imperfect, but you are perfect. And you died, you sent your son to die for our imperfection. Help us to remember that and authentically speak into that, Lord. Because it's not about what, what we do or what we've done, but it's about what Jesus has done. Help us to rest in that faithfully as we go into this year. Help us to confidently tell others about it. God, we love you. We're thankful for, for this time this morning in your word. 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray.